Ah, try now. Good morning. Let me open with another word of prayer. Father God, we come to you today expectant that you will speak to us from your word and we will listen. We pray that you would make us not only hearers of your word, but doers of it as well. We pray that you would convict and shape and fashion us into your image. We pray that you present us to be pure and blameless and holy as your church. Help us to love one another, to grow in holiness, and to do the work that you've called us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to open up to you with a gym illustration. Uh, I know not all of you have... uh, seen the movies that I've seen, and I know I may quote Lord of the Rings a little bit too often, but I have a movie reference to you that actually starts in a book. So for those of you who didn't know, in the year 1883, there was an author named Robert Louis Stevenson who wrote a popular book. Anybody? Treasure Island. Yes, if you read Treasure Island, it's a fun book to read. In this book, Stevenson invented a literary device that did not exist before his day, and he invented this thing called the black spot. The black spot was this little mark given on a piece of paper to a pirate to signify his certain death, either by mutiny or because they didn't like the guy, um, or they were going to steal all of his stuff. If you were a pirate and you received the black spot, you were going to die. And, um, of course, this uh, literary device, the black spot, wasn't um, just exclusively in Treasure Island. Lots of people used it afterwards. My favorite is the Muppet Treasure Island, first movie I ever saw in theaters. And sometimes when I hear people speak to Jim, I still think of Billy Bones saying, Jim, Jim, Jimmy, Jim, 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 Jim. So if you address Jim this week, feel free to address him that way. I give you my full permission. But of course, he gets the black spot and he is scared and he is freaking out and he's trying to run to his sea chest and he dies of a heart attack. Um, And then Jim Hawkins and the rest go on their adventure. If you're more familiar with uh, more recent pirate movies, they also stole this, like I said, in lots of different things, one of which was in the Pirates of the Caribbean in Dead Man's Chest. Davy Jones comes to Jack Sparrow and uh, he wraps his tentacly arm around his hand and um, this like skin-transforming boil, this black spot appears in Jack's hand. He tries to cover it up, um, but he has this debt to pay, um, and the uh, wrath of Jones, the beastie, the kraken, will pursue um, Sparrow until the debt has been settled. This black spot caused fear in the the eyes of these pirates, and rightfully so, Um, Unless, of course, you are Long John Silver and you have the wit to know that they made the black spot on a piece of the Bible. And then you call your comrades out and say, oh, you guys are are really toasted. You put the black spot on a Bible and he gets out of it. But for most pirates, the black spot causes fear and um, action. It spurs them to action because it's pronouncement of certain death. In our passage today, God gives his people a pronouncement of sure judgment but he follows it up with a pronouncement of sure deliverance. The context of our passage in Haggai chapter 2, if you're not there already, uh, I'm sorry, not Haggai 2, Micah 2, 
Last time I preached, it was in Haggai. I'm getting my minor prophets mixed up. In Micah chapter 2, the context of this passage is that Micah 2 is the second half of the first oracle of Micah. Micah the prophet comes to us in three major messages, burdens, or oracles, and Micah 1 and 2 is the first installment. It begins with this call for the people to hear the words of the Lord. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth. God comes in judgment. He comes down to the earth. Um, the language here describes this, this wrath of God. The, melt, the mountains melt like wax before him. And all of this judgment and destruction is for your sin. For our sin. No matter how, how bad you think you are, you may think that you are not on the low scale of sinners, but your sin is enough to elicit the full, holy, and just wrath of God. So the last time we were in Micah, we saw in Micah chapter 1 that this is the message that God's people need to hear is that God is coming, and He's coming for you and for me. Our sin bears the wrath of God, and we cannot escape it, but God's pronouncement of judgment is also a chance for us to repent. It's a call for us to turn from our evil ways and to repent. We didn't really get that message much in chapter 1, but in chapter 2 we have the second half. It is still a lot rather gloomy. It is still a pronouncement of judgment, but it ends with a message of hope. The message for Israel is that judgment is coming, you cannot remove yourself from it, but there's also hope because in God's judgment, he has not abandoned his people. The message for us today, similarly, is one of warning and of hope. We need to know that, God's, that God pronounces sure judgment against our sin and sure deliverance for those are, who are his people. So with that being said, would you turn with me, if you're not already there, to Micah chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. 
The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes before them. They break through and pass the gates, going out by it. The king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Well, again, in this second half of the first oracle that begins in chapter 1 with the hear you peoples, we have the uh, conclusion of Micah's arguments, the conclusion of this judgment, and the message of hope. It's interesting to um, observe that this is actually how all of the other two um, oracles in Micah begin. They begin with a call to listen, to hear. There's judgment, it's coming, but each one ends with a message of hope. As we look at this passage, we see a couple things. First of all, we see that God pronounces sure judgment against those who devise wickedness. This judgment that God devises is inescapable. We can't remove ourselves from it. We see that the words of the Lord, even though they are hard, they are good and true. And we see that God promises sure deliverance. So that's the roadmap of where we're going. First, in verses 1 and 2, we have God's pronouncement of sure judgment against those who devise wickedness. Verse 1, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. The word woe is used to describe a lament or a pronouncement of judgment. Here it's obviously a pronouncement of judgment. It um, is a, a word that sounds like what you would cry out in a time of trouble. Um, and it is the, the trouble that is coming on these people, the judgment, the death sentence that is coming upon them because of what they've done. They devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. The target audience is originally not the main mass of the people. The target audience is specifically a group of people who are rich enough, have enough land to basically do whatever they want. They can um, seize lands, they can buy land, um, they can take land away from other people. So it's a little bit of a, a richer upper class of people that is being specifically addressed here. Um, they're able to sit on their beds at night and think, hmm, I'd really like to steal that guy's house. Yeah, okay, I'll do it. And in the morning they get up and they do it because they can. Um, so that's the kind of people that we're talking about specifically, and that doesn't necessarily address all of us because I don't have that kind of money. But um, there is something about this that does address all of us. Whether you have riches or lots of land and whether you can do whatever you want to do because of your riches, all of us have a sinful, deceitful, restless heart. All of us um, have moments when in our hearts we devise wickedness. Um, sometimes maybe we do it subconsciously. Sometimes maybe you do it consciously. 
I don't know if you can relate to a time in your life or a time in your past or even last night if, if you sat in your bed and thought about sinful things and did them because you could. It sounds kind of harsh to say it because as Christians we wouldn't willingly uh, admit that we would do this kind of a vile evil practice, right? No, I don't sit in my bed and think up evil to do in the morning just because I can. But there is truth to these words. Our hearts devise evil. They are deceitful above all else. Sick. Who can understand it? When morning dawns, these people perform the wickedness that they had devised because it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. It's interesting to me that there seems to be a progression here of sin. First is the devising of sin, which happens in the secret of the heart, and then the performing of sin. First is the coveting, which is in the secret of the heart, and then the seizing. Uh, sin starts in the heart, and the actions that we do on the outside are public sins, perhaps are known to others. The truth is that God knows our private sins just as well as he knows our public ones. And our private sins are just as grievous. That's why Jesus says um, this is a heart issue. It doesn't matter if you just commit adultery with a woman. If you look at a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery. Jesus sees the sin as serious. That is something for our meditation we should cry out with the psalmist, Lord, search me and know me and try me. Find, see if there be any wicked way in me and create in me a clean heart. We need this kind of introspection because the evil of our hearts runs deep. There's a verse that comes to my mind in Proverbs. Um, again, maybe to drill this home a little bit too far, of uh, Proverbs 6. Um, there are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven that are abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. Those are just the first few of that list, but sometimes... I have noticed how my heart devises evil. You have to be alert and on guard and catch it because it happens so naturally in the depths of our hearts. We devise wickedness. We devise evil. Sometimes we even have habits and uh, a dull enough conscience that our feet are swift to go to evil. I don't know if you've ever noticed yourself, caught yourself in a moment of temptation where you may be literally walking to go do something that you know is wrong. And you ask yourself, what am I doing? Feet, where are you going? Be careful, little feet, where you go. But if you don't step in and take drastic action in that moment, our feet are swift to run to evil. 
Incidentally, this accusation of woe against these people who devise evil and do it, they covet and they seize, it's the first actual description of sin that we see of these people. Chapter 1 just starts with, Hear you people, the Lord is coming down for you for your sin. This is the first time when God actually addresses this is what your sin is. God cares about it, even though it has drastic consequences. The sin of these people is literally kicking people out of their lands and out of their houses. We see later that women and children don't have places to live anymore. Um, So the sin on the outside has drastic consequences, but really God cares about the heart, and he calls woe on those who devise from their heart. So this is the wickedness. God moves to address this wickedness in judgment in verses 3 through 5, and this judgment is sure. There's a little bit of a play on words here um, as the wicked person here um, devises wickedness on their beds. Um, God says, you devise wickedness on your beds? I see you. I know your heart. And guess what? I am devising judgment against you. It's kind of an ironic wordplay there. Therefore, verse 3, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. This disaster is obviously inescapable. God says you cannot remove your necks from it even if you were to try. It will be a time of complete and absolute disaster. You will not be able to get by and think, oh, you know, it won't be that bad because it will absolutely humble you. You won't be able to walk haughtily anymore. This will be known. It will be humbling. It will be devastating. I don't know if any of you grew up in a household that gave uh, consistent and just discipline and the Lord, but I grew up in a household where I received spankings. And I remember there were times when I thought to myself, you know, if I clench just right, or if I shift just right, I don't know if you thought this, maybe it's not going to hurt that bad. You know, I'm going to get off. This is going to be okay. I'm going to be able to walk away from this. Um, and th- there's, that's a, a description of our hearts. When we receive judgment, either from our sin or consequences of our actions, there's something about the human heart that wants to slip out of it. Yeah, you take the hit, you take the consequences, you take the judgment for your sin, but we try to say it's not going to be that bad. We're going to be fine. Today, we have a popular idea that hell is fun, and I'll see you there. We're going to have a party. That's one way that our culture tries to take this judgment of, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, I'm going to hell, I'll see you there, but it's not going to be that bad. Other ways is we... uh, we seek to elude the judgment of our sin is by denial. We, we think, you know what, this, this isn't true of me, this isn't happening, um, this isn't, isn't going to happen. Um, we see that in ways when people say, you know, God is a God of love and hell, hell doesn't exist. We deny our sinfulness. And God tells us straight up, this judgment is coming for you. Your sin is clear. The judgment is clear. There's no escaping it. There's no sliding out of it. In Pirates of the Caribbean, I think of Captain Jack Sparrow, right? In that movie where he gets the black spot on his hand. He goes to great lengths to run away from the Kraken beastie. He 
runs his ship up on the ground. He tries to stay on land. He gets the jar of dirt because he thinks that Davy Jones can't go on land. He even acquires the beating heart of Davy Jones and thinks that he has it in his jar of dirt so that when judgment comes to him face to face, he says, I've got a jar of dirt. Remember this? And we are just like that. We think, you know, I have my goodness. I'm good enough or I'm okay that when judgment day comes, I've got my jar of dirt and somehow I'm going to be fine. The, the message that we need to hear is that God's judgment comes for your sin and you cannot avoid it. You cannot hide it. You can justify it all day long. But God sees it and he is just. The uh, irony in God's judgment is that his judgment is fitting of the crime. Um, in verse 4, we say that this taunt song is brought up against these people. They moan bitterly, we're ruined, we're utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it to me, from me to an apostate he allots our fields. The irony is that these people who buy extortion and their economic power, they, they seize lands and houses and they kick people out and they amass for themselves lands and wealth. They make homeless people. Um, they will be homeless. They, they take lands away from other people. Their lands will be taken away and they will be given to an apostate. Uh, assumably, um, the Assyrians, as God brings the Assyrians in to wipe them out and to give their lands to them um, and to replace the people with these Gentile pagan foreigners. So their lands will be taken away and given to others just as they have done. Jesus says, by the measure that you use, so it will be used to you. As you judge, it will be judged to you. Uh, the one who sows, it will be sown to him. We have these principles that stand for us in the New Testament well, as well, and we can't ignore them. We can't avoid them. We can't say to ourselves that, you know, it'll be okay. If I do these bad things, God will still love me. The truth is that those who do these things, Jesus says, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We think by our secret sins that we can play God, that we know better. This is God's law. This is what it looks like to walk uprightly. But I don't need God. I can be my own God. I can do what I want. I think the irony, the sad, unfortunate, tragic irony, is that for those who shake their fist at heaven and say that, you know, I can do my own thing, they will find themselves very helpless in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where they are very much not God. They are not in control and they cannot do as they wish. Our rebellion against the Lord of hosts comes at a steep price, but a fitting price. One last observation here in verse 5, this judgment that God gives is sure. You cannot remove your necks from it. It is inescapable. It is a fittingly ironic, and it matches the, the consequence, the, the crime. Um, but also it is final and lasting. Verse 5 says, Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. This picture of casting the line by lot brings our attention to uh, Joshua when the tribes come into the promised land and they, 
distinguish the tribes and the various land portions of this is the inheritance of Benjamin and this is the inheritance of Judah and this is where the boundary goes. It's that process of casting the line, casting lots um, as for the Lord to determine who has what portion in the land. To be an Israelite was to be among the people of God and it was to own land, to be a, a resident of the, the promised land. This is the land that God has given us. We are God's people. And the fact that I have a portion of this inheritance is synonymous with I have, uh, I am God's and he is mine. I am among the people of God. And the solemn warning here for these people who are among God's people but who devise wickedness in their hearts is that you are not in God's family. The, they're going to exile. Chapter 1 tells us this. Make yourselves bald, cut off your hair. Your children are going to exile. But there is a promise that God will gather his people and bring them back. And if they should return, they will no longer have a place here. They will not have land here. They will not belong to the assembly of the Lord anymore. This message is given to us as well in Habakkuk when God tells Habakkuk, those who live, the righteous who live, will live by their faith. A picture again that our inheritance in God is not our standing in the church, not our ownership of land, not our goodness or our performance, but it is in our hearts, our walk by faith, a faith that produces love and obedience. And if we do not have that in our hearts, we have no portion in the Lord. For us, this stands as an eschatological judgment the end times. If we live this way, God will say to us, depart from me. I never knew you. You have no portion with me. So that is the final lasting part of this judgment. It is very solemn. Verse 6, excuse me. We have seen that God pronounces sure judgment against his people. We've seen that this judgment that God devises against the devisers, it's inescapable, it's fitting, it's final. Now we see uh, that the words of the Lord are good and true, even in judgment, even if they are hard. Verse 6, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. This is the language um, of those false prophets who are in Israel telling the people and telling the kings, this isn't the Lord's message. This guy is a kook. Go throw him down a well like they did to Jeremiah or just get him out of here because nobody should be preaching this kind of message. God says to his people, you are my people. I have chosen you. Um, you will be solid. You will be sure. These preachers completely ignore the, the covenants of Deuteronomy when God says, here's the blessing and the curse. Here's life and death. If you obey, there is life, which is true. Um, but if you disobey, there is death and consequences. Um, and these people are only clinging to the fact that God is slow to anger. He's abounding in mercy and he, he loves us and he has chosen us and he will not disband us. He will not uh, abandon us. Um, these, these preachers... Um, you could say, are a health, wealth, and prosperity kind of preachers. They preach what is good. They preach what sounds good, and God calls it into question. These people, they say, do not preach. One should not preach of such things. And God says, should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? 
Admittedly, these verses are a little bit hard to interpret. Some commentators view them, these rhetorical questions, as um, joined with the quoted words of these false prophets. But the uh, answers to these um, questions are fairly obvious to me. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? No, it shouldn't. This is not the right message. This is not God's words that these things should not be preached. These things are being preached by Micah because he is God's man, God's prophet sent with God's message to God's people. And these people are denying that. Has the Lord grown impatient? Again, this is a little bit difficult. You could say, well, I guess the Lord has grown impatient because he's pronouncing this judgment, um, his, his slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness has reached its end, and now God is bringing the judgment about that he has uh, foretold would come. But I think it's more addressing the impatience of the Lord. Is, is the Lord grown short? Has he grown rash? Is God just going to, you know, um, send us away into exile because of this little thing. God's not the crazy God like that just to dismiss us, send us away um, because of this little trivial thing. They're really diminishing their sin. This evil that you address, we're not that bad. Our sin isn't that grave. You know, we have some problems in our upper economic class. We have some homeless people, but we're not that bad. God surely won't just do this, this harsh kind of punishment. That's not like God. That's not who he is. So they say, has the Lord grown impatient? But the truth is that God's wrath has come to a point where he is bringing it. His loving kindness and his patience is meant for us to repent, but that does not mean that God does not bring his judgment for those who deserve it. Are these his deeds? Again, they say, this, these are not the deeds of the Lord just to send us away into exile on a whim. These are the deeds of the Lord because he is sending you, but he's not doing so frivolously. He's not doing so without great long suffering and forethought and prophets pleading with the people, turn from your ways. So these questions are rhetorical. Um, they describe that these are the just and right actions of God, and they're vastly different from the interpretation of the false teachers, from the interpretation of God and um, his people. Uh, these things should be preached because God, it's God's word and because um, God is bringing his judgment. God says, do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. This is really a, a power punch verse, isn't it? When we hear the word of God, and sometimes we don't like it, right? Sometimes God comes to us like he did Cain, and he says, do you do well to be angry? You need to master your sin. You need to rule over it, or else it will rule over you. God's words even when they address the sinfulness of our hearts, they are good and right and true. They split the soul and they divide even flesh and marrow. They are sweet like honey. The law of the Lord is pure and just and perfect and holy, and it, it shows us how bad we are, right? The New Testament calls our 
the Word of God like a mirror. It, it reveals to us our sin. And yeah, that's hard. That is uncomfortable. But it is true and good and lovely and more to be desired than gold, even sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. There's two ways that this verse kind of plays. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. Based on the blessing and the curse of Deuteronomy, if you obey, there is life. If you disobey, there is death. So God's words do good to those who walk uprightly. God's words also do bad to those who do not walk uprightly, right? And that's why God's people are being sent into exile. But in another sense, God's words do good to him who hears and does them. Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. These words are hard. They call out our sin. But if we hear them and we respond in repentance and obedience, they do good. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves, Proverbs 3 says. And these words are good for us as well. Something that we need to consider as we consider our sin. Again, these are kind of harsh words. They're given to Israel specifically with their sin. The truth is that our hearts are just as devious, right? We devise sin just as secretly, just as wickedly. And when God's word calls us out, or when a brother or sister calls us out, we need to be careful that we don't resist the word of God. To be found resisting the word of God would, would bring about our death and um, judgment. There's several warning passages in Scripture where God warns his people and he says, you need to walk rightly before me. Those who do not are not of me. Um, just because it's so important, I'll mention a couple of them. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 we have a description of Israel. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happen to them. Again, Israel, we could even think about Micah chapter 2 here. These things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, lest anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Matthew 24, Jesus says, because of lawlessness, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So there's many other passages that talk about this. We need to examine our hearts. And dear brother, dear sister, if you find in your heart that you resist God's word, that you resist correction, that you resist rebuke, I urge you to take care because these are the marks of those who go away, fall away from the faith. First John chapter 2, they went out from us to show that they were not really of us. This is something we need to consider. Are we truly in the Lord? A red flag, do we balk at God's word? Do we take God's correction? Do we hear it? And do we obey? Something for us to consider. My words do good to him who walks uprightly, God says, but lately my people have not been walking uprightly. So now God launches into a description of the people of Israel's um, sin. Uh, they 
um, should be able to hear God's word and walk uprightly, but they are not. But lately, verse 8, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses and from their young children you take away my splendor forever. These acts are almost the acts of warfare. They are taking away houses. They're stripping people of their property, of their clothes. Um, they are doing these violent acts um, with no thought of the consequences, with no declaration of war. It is wrong. God sees it, and it is not the description of the people of God, not those who are called to walk uprightly. They are justly condemned. And so God calls them in, in verse 10 to just get up and leave. Just go. Arise and go. This place is no place of rest because of the uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. Our sin brings about consequences, and those consequences come for us. We cannot escape them. We cannot avoid them. Um, there's a warning here to um, get up and go, perhaps even get up and escape this land because the judgment is coming. But really, the point is, there is an uncleanness here that will be purged um, by a grievous destruction. You can, you can stay, you can say that it's going to be all right, but these are not truthful words. Again, he kind of mocks these false teachers in verse 11. When God himself says, you know, if a man would go about and just utter wind um, and say, uh, they're, they're, these, this isn't going to happen, um, I'm, I'm going to preach to you of wine and strong drink. Hey, how's that for an entertaining conversation? Um, he would be the preacher for this people. God calls them out. You know, they, these people, they have itching ears. They're going to accumulate for themselves people who are going to say what they want to hear, and they're going to be happy. Uh, Jeremiah 6 in chapter 8, there's a verse when these prophets, they cry out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And such a message could not be any more destructive than to mislead people into thinking they are right with God when they are not. Despite the uh, false teaching of these preachers, God faithfully gives his word to his people so that they may hear, so that they may turn from their sin, so that they may obey. Even though the exile is sure and these people are going into judgment, um, God is faithful and he's working more than what they can see right now, which brings us to our last little section in verses 11, 12, and 13, excuse me, 12 and 13, when God, the same God who delivers, pronounces sure judgment, is also the God who pronounces sure deliverance. Verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. It kind of comes surprisingly to us, does it not? This turn, these words of comfort, of promise, that this um, message that is so hard to hear and is so full of judgment and woe ends with such a hopeful 
and joyous notes that this God who sends these people into exile, who removes their land from them and who scatters them to the nations also says, I will surely assemble ye all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of, of Israel. Perhaps more than a sure deliverance, it's a sure reassembly of God's, of God's people that Israel has a promise. They will return to this land. God knows what he's doing. He has plans for them, plans that include a future and a hope, and he will bring them back to this land. This is a specific promise to them um, and not to us. Uh, The promise for us to be assembled to a specific land, to be brought back to God's promised land, does not apply to us. But there is a picture here, isn't there? A picture of God's promise to us. That despite our sin, God promises us sure deliverance. If we live by faith, the righteous will find their deliverance in the Lord. Our promise of hope is that the Lord will come and take us and gather us just like he will for them. Jesus says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will surely come and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 describes the Lord's return. This king, the same king, mind you, who comes and treads on the high places of the earth and the, melt, the mountains melt like wax before him. But this king comes, verse 16, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Some translate that, will be gathered together with the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Our God is a shepherd. He comes as a, as a king in judgment, um, and he will come in judgment for our sin. And if we do not have sanctuary in Jesus, that's what we will face upon his return. Of course, for those of us who are in Christ, the story is much different. We have a shepherd, a savior, a king who comes and gathers us to himself. He knows us. We are the sheep of his pasture. We know his voice. And when he calls, we will be with him, set together in a fold like a noisy multitude of men. You know, when there's a lot of people or when there's joyous talk or when we are about to have our potluck after church, there's talking and and eating and and joy and, and noise from a joyous multitude. And that's what we are promised. Even though we may be these, these Israelites are going to a season of exile. They will be brought back together in fellowship with the king. He who opens the breach, verse 13, goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. We see how God works ahead of his people, going before his people, leading them out of exile and other of the prophets in the Old Testament books where God works in the heart of the king. The king issues an edict saying all of God's people, let them go back to the land, let them rebuild the temple. Um, It's a beautiful thing to see in scripture, but we also have that promise for us. 
we have a promise of a king who is coming. He passes through the gate, breaking through the walls of sin and death to bring us to be with him. The truth of the gospel is that God is holy and just, and we stand justly condemned for my sin, for your sin, for the sins of your heart, three o'clock this morning in the darkness, for the sins that we devise in our beds, for the sins that we do in the secret of our hearts and perform in the public of others, for the things that we covet that no one knows about. God sees it, and his judgment is coming. We cannot escape it because we are truly sinful. Our hearts are so devious, so wicked. We cannot do anything of our own to remove our necks from this situation. You can try to carry a jar of dirt with you. You can run your ship up against the shore. You can bolster your soul with feel-good sayings about, you know, God really isn't that mad at me. My sin isn't really that bad. I'll be a good person. God will know. God will wink at sin, as Jim says, as he's going through Romans. And that's not the case. The judgment is coming. We cannot remove it. So, as we meditate on the gospel, in the face of a holy God who has just wrath against our sin, and in the face of our helplessness and our depths of depravity in our sin, there's only one answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus makes the way. He bursts through these walls as our sacrifice. He takes this judgment. There is no removing of necks from this judgment because Jesus did not remove his neck from it. He took it for you and for me. We can be seen as holy and just because of our King who does this for us, who accomplishes so great a salvation. I urge you, if you have not found the salvation in Jesus Christ, I urge you to come talk to me, come talk to one of the elders. Don't leave this place until you find your life in Jesus. If you cling to these jars of dirt, to these reasons where you think that your sin is not on the chopping block, your heart will somehow escape judgment. I have to tell you this is not true. I would like to, 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 to preach to you about a message that is a little bit more easy to hear, right? But this is God's word, and it does good if we have ears to hear, to listen, and obey. We all stand surely condemned with the pronouncement of death. There's only one who pronounces life, and his words do good if we will listen. Let us pray. Lord, this journey through Micah is not an easy one. There are hard words here, words that we do not want to hear, words that we don't really want to read. We uh, um, would like to think better of ourselves than the picture that your word presents of us. But the truth is the truth, and it is good and right because it warns us of what is sure, and that is that we are sinners, we stand justly condemned. You are so good, Father, in your love for us, but you are so just as well. And that is why Jesus died on the cross for our sins. 
We pray that you would help us to hear hard messages like this and to cherish the gospel, to cling to it, to remember our decisions of faith in you and to daily put off the old self and to put on the new. We pray that you would um, help us to find our hiding place in you, to be able to have ears that are quick to hear conviction and to turn, to have your word um, do good to us because we walk uprightly, or at least we are humble and um, able to be corrected even in our sinfulness. Lord, I pray that you would build your church, that we would long for your word, even the hard words of your word, that we would long for correction to walk with you and to be disciplined by you because you love us. And God, for anyone here, perhaps, Lord, who you are working in their hearts today in conviction, I pray that you would give us the strength to hear your words, to be convicted of our sins, and to know what we need to do to change. We thank you, Lord, that your words give us an accurate picture of ourselves, but also a chance to repent. So we pray that you would bring us to the knowledge of who you are, bring us to repentance for the sake of your name, we pray. Amen.